Hello, hello, welcome back. It's Leading Women in Tech Time. How are you doing, my friend? How is life treating you as we are well into Q3? Well, this week, I'm excited to let you know that in just two days' time, if you're listening to this the day the episode drops, Tuesday, October 11th, in two days' time, on Thursday, October 13th, I will be joining my dear friend and fellow executive coach, Moira Lethbridge, to discuss with an audience of extraordinary women how to make the most of the rest of the year, put in place their zones of genius and their plans, their influence plan, and so much more, including dealing with imposter syndrome, talking to your executives, all those things. We're putting all that in place in the Women's Leadership Empowerment Summit. And I would love for you to join. There's still a few seats left. We keep the numbers really, really low. You get a lot of coaching. It's called a summit, but it's really actually a very high touch coaching event. (laughs) And we're going to be making sure that you are set up for the rest of the year. You have a plan for next year. You're feeling really good about it. You were set up in terms of your professional development for your success, but so is your team and your organization. If that sounds good to you, go head over to the show notes to grab the link. It is bit.ly forward slash WLES 2022 for Women's Leadership Empowerment Summit, WLES 2022. Go to that link, grab it from the show notes if you prefer. Come find out about us and join us on Thursday. I would love to see you there, get to know you and help you shine. You're listening to the Leading Woman in Tech podcast, where we talk about real leadership and what this means for the world of tech, the techniques, tips, and strategies you can use to become a standout leader. I'm your host, Tony Collis, tech leadership coach, strategist, and coffee lover. And in each episode, I share my best insights designed to make your success not just simple, but inevitable. Whether you're on the way to the C-suite, an emerging leader, or a budding entrepreneur, this is the podcast you need to become a lit-up leader and turn your tech passion into a career you love. Today's topic is really one that I think most of us struggle with. Executives make pretty huge decisions day in, day out that can either make or break a company. But all too often, when we are not the executive, we're interfacing with them. Or if you are an executive, but you're talking to other executives, maybe you're reporting into executives, whether you report into a CEO and you're a C-level executive yourself, or maybe you aren't an executive, but you deal with them regularly. Their decision-making can come through as frustrating and it actually sometimes damages our careers. Hey, executives are the ones that make decisions to lay off entire business units to get rid of an entire product line, right? It's damaging to our careers. It's also exhausting. So I want to talk to you today about navigating this. Like I said, whether you're or you are already an executive or not, let's understand what's going on and see if you can make better use of the decisions your executives are making. See if you can be better at interfacing with them, help them make better decisions that work for you and just learn how to operate the way they do and help take away that confusion and frustration. At the end of the day, you aren't going to progress in your career, you aren't going to get the influence you want in your career, and you aren't going to have the impact you want in your career if you can't understand executives. If you're constantly frustrated and angry with them, which I know (laughs) so many of the women I've talked to over the years, this is a common complaint. These executives do not understand my job, they don't understand what I'm doing, they don't get it, they don't give me what I need, 
it's a fight. It's a constant battle. So I want to like remove some of that mistiness. I want to help you understand what's driving executive decision making. So you can help work with them better. But also as you become an executive yourself, you can do a better job of one decision making and two, explaining that to the people that report into you. Because believe me, at some point, you're going to be that executive that everybody rolls their eyes at. So let's look at what drives executive decision making. Well, the first thing to recognize is that executives don't want to be too quick to make decisions without thinking of what's best for their team, even though it might not feel like that sometimes, what's best for their company. But they also don't want to take too much time that the critical time has passed. That's a delicate balance that can fluster executives. Yes, that anger, frustration, fluster, ambiguity that you get could be that they, they know they're in that critical point and they didn't know how to make the decision. And they feel trapped and stifled in making the good decisions. Again, something to watch out for as you get to this point. Some decision makers make quick, impulsive decisions without thinking all the way through, while others think through details but may take too long to make their decisions. Strong, effective leaders fall in the middle ground. That's where you want to end up but you might be working with executives who haven't honed and refined that skill yet. Do not make that wrong. This is hard, (laughs) okay? Good executives and leaders are also open-minded and take into account others' point of views in their decision-making process. Sometimes there's not the time. And sometimes I get a lot of frustration from earlier career clients that I'm coaching because their executives normally consider their views and then sometimes don't. You can't read their mind. You don't know everything that they're going through. So... Be patient, okay? Open-mindedness allows you to grow as a leader and allows your team to grow, but it's not always possible. A great leader also is transparent with their team and how the decisions are being made because it builds trust within the team. Again, it's not always possible. But if you are finding that most of the time an executive is being transparent with you, that's going to build trust and respect. If you're working with executives who don't, and a lot of the time when when anybody, any of us, is feeling more pressured without a lot of emotional intelligence and self-awareness, we retract and we we bring the decisions in, we stop being as transparent. So as we enter a recession, I just believe this is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I really don't want to say we're entering a recession because I think (laughs) we're entering a recession because everybody's saying we're entering a recession. But hey, this is what's happening. But as we enter the recession, a lot of people are going to be feeling a lot more pressure And a natural instinct is to keep all the cards closer to our chests. So we want our executives to be transparent. I want you to be transparent, whatever level of leadership you're at. But sometimes it gets retracted. Again, understand it, empathize with it, even if you don't agree with it. At the end of the day, executive decision making is needed to move the business forward. But their decisions are hard. A great executive has delegated day-to-day operational decisions. Yes, even a COO whose job is operations, they've delegated it all. At the executive level, you're dealing with the unexpected, the changes of direction, the strategic pieces. These are bigger and much more complicated decisions. There's no clear right or wrong. Lots of data should be driving these decisions and great executives will know how to capture this data and when they have enough of it. However, less confident executives, which at the end of the day is everybody who's not been an executive for very long, plus a whole load of the more experienced ones, (laughs) do not know when enough data is enough. And they therefore may hesitate or keep asking for more from their teams because they're afraid of the decision. Hint here, you're never going to get all the data you need. 
Something else to watch out for, actually, if you are the person doing this, is asking for more and more data without realizing the ramifications to your team. I just need this, and you think it's a five-minute thing. Your team actually needs to take, take a week of five people doing it. Do not be afraid to say, how long will that take you? How much effort is that? You might be thinking it's a five-minute thing, but the cost of the business is not worth it in terms of how much it's going to improve your decision-making. Just going to flag that one up there. Also, if you get one of these requests and you think to yourself, my God, that's a lot of work, you should flag that up. You should just say, just so you're aware, that's going to take me a week to get to you. It's going to use three of my staff. I just want you to be aware that that's what that's going to take to get you that data. Is that okay? You might be surprised that they're like, oh, no, actually. (laughs) The less confident executive, in fact, the less confident leader in general, when we're hesitating, we want this data to make us feel better because we're afraid of the decision. We will ask these questions without fully thinking through the ramifications of the impact of our question. So just provide that insight in a kind and calm and useful manner. Some are also scared of getting the decision wrong, and rightly so. These decisions are often so big that they can make or break an organization. The key for an executive is building that expertise and confidence, and alongside that, having good exit strategies for whatever decisions you make. Because there is no right or wrong answer, you've got to take the decision and see how it plays out. So having a good exit strategy is a great way for an executive to ride out the waves that are coming. However, a lot of executives fail to make decisions or seem to contradict their decisions when these two things aren't in place, right? When they are scared, but they haven't got the expertise or confidence and they haven't got exit strategies, they fail to make the decision or they contradict themselves, right? I've had bosses like this who they'll tell me something one week and tell us that's the direction we're heading in. And then literally like a week later, this has happened. A week later, we've pivoted the entire strategy of the business And you think to yourself, whoa, where did that come from? A lack of confidence and exit strategies. It's incredibly frustrating and even toxic for those around us. So whenever you are finding yourself working with an executive who's struggling with decision-making, turn your empathy up. How can you work with that executive to help them see more of the big picture around them? Help them understand what's driving their decision-making, what is going well, maybe not going so well, and what might be causing this angst that is showing up as toxic behavior for you. I'm not saying it's justified behavior, but I'm saying there's something you can do about it if you've got a boss in this situation. Now let's dig into how this can be improved both for yourself and any executives you work with. Remember first the four different styles of decision-making. First of all, conceptual. For long-term projects, it takes into account the ideas of all the team members. That's a conceptual decision. Directive decision-making. These are decisions made based on experience and knowledge without seeking opinions from others. Then there's analytical decision-making, which are based on the facts and the data. And then there's behavioral decision-making, where it's collaborative with team members and guided by opinions. In an ideal world, a great executive uses all four of these. The reality is that most of us have one or two we are most comfortable with. Take a look at both yourself and others around you and assess What are you and their natural inclinations towards decision-making? What do you use in preference? Do you adjust based on the type of decision? Do you move from conceptual to analytical easily? Do you only use directive or do you always seek that collaboration and do behavioral? What do you apply when and why? Now ask those same questions about the executives around you that maybe frustrate you. 
If you can understand their natural inclinations, even if you don't agree with them, you can likely find out their strengths, which is going to help you help them more. Once you understand them, ask yourself, what can I do to help them? Do they need to be challenged in their decision-making approach? If yes, then why? How will this help the business if you did challenge them? What is the business case and the personal case for changing them? And will that be enough to get them on board? Another approach is to be the one providing the counterpoint. This is powerful if, for example, you have a strength in an area they don't. If they love behavioral decisions and you love analytical, you can go in with a part decision that is based on the data and provide that to them to help them finish the decision. Similarly, if their strength is conceptual, what can you do to provide the fine detail? This is how we as leaders build better companies, by complementing those around us. This is something I love to talk about, so it's slight tangent here, but <laughs> we should be complementing each other. A lot of us hire people exactly like us. Uh, that plays out badly in terms of diversity and inclusion because we hire mini-me's and we end up with a room full of white men or a room full of white women, potentially. Um, just saying, right? We tend to hire people like us. More than that, we tend to hire people that think like us and have the experience of us. Even if we've dealt with, I need people that look different from me and have different life experience, we still tend to be looking for people that have something about them that means they think the way we think. They tend to resonate with us while in interviews. I want to throw that away. We should all be hiring people whose zones of genius is our zone of drudgery. Um, that's a whole different thing potentially, but the things you hate doing, the things you're not good at doing, the things you never want to be doing, you should hire people who are amazing at that, who that's their zone of genius. That's the things they can't help but do. And that applies to decision-making too. If you're a natural analytical decision-maker, consider hiring a conceptual or a behavioral decision-maker just to challenge you. Okay, tangent aside, <laughs> that is how you build better companies, but you can only do that if you recognize the hole that needs to be filled and then figure out how to fill it. Remember, you do also need buy-in. So if the person you're working with loves to be conceptual and you want to provide the detail, think about how to present your findings in such a way that it is conceptual. Speak their language. Now, as an executive, they really should have figured out how to flip between styles. But the reality is most people don't. They've got a head for other reasons. You are going to change that. But to do that, you need to speak their language first. So make sure you provide your insights in a way that makes sense to that person. Then let's flip this around and think through what you would do if you are the executive and want to improve your decision making. Well, think through your natural inclinations and do two things. One, do an honest assessment of where your weaknesses are. This is a great thing to do with a coach or a mentor, ideally both. They serve different purposes, after all, coaches and mentors. Then put in place an action plan to strengthen in your week's areas. Then secondly, I want you to work on backfilling your weak areas with people you have that are, have that as their strength. You still need to strengthen your weak areas. You can't just backfill because it's likely it's always going to be a weak area for you unless you suddenly find a new passion and you spend a lot of hours doing it. It's unlikely that's a good use of your time. You need to strengthen it because you will be better equipped to better use the people that have that strength if you've built some of those skills yourself. We all have weak areas. Don't make it wrong to get support in your weakest areas. But be aware, you need some basic knowledge and understanding 
in order to use the people around you most effectively. So let's wrap up by digging into some of the general areas we all need to work on to improve decision-making processes, whether you're an executive right now, an aspiring executive, or just aiming to up-level in your career. First of all, trust your gut. Trusting your gut will help drive your decision-making. We have gut instincts for a reason. Listen to it, then look for how to back it up. Don't dismiss this entirely, though. If you need more information, ask for it. If you have questions that may influence the outcome of your decision, ask those questions. Get clarity on the information that's missing. The more specific you can be on what is missing, the more likely you are to get what you need. If you can't tie down what's missing, it probably means there isn't anything valid that is missing. You're just concerned about making a big decision that you don't have the perfect answer for. What outcome best aligns with a company's goals? This is going to determine the outcome you actually want to achieve. You want to make a choice that is in best alignment so you don't regret your decision afterwards, even if it doesn't go fully to plan. Ask for help from your team. Involve them in the process. Have a circle of people whom you trust with difficult decisions. Even if you're an analytical decision maker, I strongly encourage you to use your team because they might think of analyses to do that you hadn't thought of. Build your circle with those who have varying backgrounds, those who challenge you and will be your devil's advocate that can bring varying insights into what you're talking about. Then practice critical thinking. Do research and know your biases that could influence your decision. Keep emotions out of decision-making processes, although that's easier said than done. And use data and metrics, again, the analytical piece to help guide the decision-making process. Another big one to improve your decision-making is to set deadlines. Big decisions bring procrastination, which is bad for business. Set deadlines. You only allow that deadline to shift if there's genuinely a big hole that you need filling. Identify worst case scenarios. And then don't let fear of making a bad decision get in the way of making a decision at all. If you know your worst case scenarios, you can start coming up with exit strategies. If this is coming, okay, we made this situation happen. What can we do to get out of this situation if it does play up? Risk mitigation 101. And for decisions that are big, but you feel there isn't enough data on it, as part of the strategy that will back up that decision, put in place regular reviews and exit plans. That way, as you get new data and new information, you'll be able to exit if needed. This actually happens when we do strategy rehearsal as well. We kind of put in place, like, like, what would happen if we did this? And then you anticipate more of the scary moments. You can mitigate them before they happen. You can pivot before they happen. But trust that your check-in and pivot plan is good because you wrote it at the time that you're implementing your decision. Then finally, to improve your decision-making, consider alternative solutions. Decisions should be looked at through different lenses and exploring alternatives. Have that devil's advocacy and a more critical evaluation. This is why whatever stage of your career you're at, you want to surround yourself with people who are going to challenge you you can do it respectfully yes but will challenge you by considering these alternative solutions you're going to be able to check in on your pivot plan be better equipped for the exit strategies and you'll know when to be looking out for new data that might suggest you need to pivot so let me summarize a little bit what we've discussed here today first of all the real reason I want you to have a think about how to better navigate decision making with executives is whether you're an executive yourself or you're just working with executives, 
or you're just frustrated by them, (laughs) including if you're an executive, you might still be frustrated by other executives. Decision-making is one of these things that can make or break a business, and it can make or break morale, and it can make or break relationships. But there are things that you can do to improve it, even if you're in a not great environment. The first thing is to understand what's driving your current executive decision-making, both yours and those around you. Are the people around you making effective decisions? Are they being transparent? Are they using one or more of the four key different styles, conceptual, directive, analytical, behavioral? Are they ready to mix and match? Are you ready to mix and match? Do you surround yourself with people that are complementary to you and allow yourself to be challenged? How can you get inside of the head of the executives you're working with to help them make decisions based on their decision-making style? So maybe you're analytical, they're conceptual. How can you present your analytical decisions such that a conceptual decision-maker can empathize with it? That is such an important one. The earlier you figure that out in your career, the faster you are going to go. If you can present what you need to get across in a way that the audience that needs to hear it really gets rather than the way you get it, you're going to get further in your career. (laughs) And that does not stop. Just because you're a CEO, you still have to do it. You have to do it with your investors. You have to do it with your team. The more we can think about how the person in front of us thinks, the faster we get ahead in our careers. Let's talk finally about the mindset behind this. As you know, I love a leadership mindset moment at the end of every episode. Today, I want you to stop always needing for consensus from teams. Many of the women I work with are consensus-driven collaborative decision makers. It's one of the things that on average, and I'm being very generic here, (laughs) on average is one of the things that makes us different from our male colleagues. Women in general tend to be more collaborative. Whether that's nature or nurture, it's kind of irrelevant. It is just a thing. You might not be. Do not worry if that's not true. But one of the things I know that many of my clients struggle with is they've got a long way by being collaborative. They've built a lot of trust. They avoid conflict as a result. And they've built a lot of confidence and comfort. Here's the thing. It's not a democracy, my love. (laughs) Yes, consensus is appropriate in some situations. And it can avoid conflict. And so we often find it more comfortable. But discussions can go round and round, prolonging the decision-making process. And sometimes your teams just do not get why a decision needs to be made the right way. You need to say, thank you for your input. However, we're doing this. Don't use it very often. You don't need to. But it's not a democracy. Secondly, focus on the bigger picture. Teams and leaders can get wrapped up in the minutiae. They forget that big picture and lose sight of the purpose. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why is the business doing what it's doing? Why are you here? Keep focus on the goals, priorities, and that bigger picture and the why. And then the final mindset piece. Don't forget to focus on facts, not opinion. Remind your team to leave emotion and opinion out and just focus on the facts. It's really hard to do. But in group discussions, someone should be tasked with ensuring that only facts are brought to the table. That's it for today's episode of the Leading Women in Tech podcast. As always, if you want to find out more about any of my programs working with me or in particular Lit Up Leadership Academy, do head over to my website and some key links are in the show notes. But until next time, as always, stay in your tech leadership game. Follow your dreams because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech.
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, check out how to get more of my help and some free resources. It's where I take what I talk about in this podcast and really help you apply it. Hop on over to tonycollis.com and check out Work With Tony and free resources in the menu bar. Until next time, this was Tony Collis on the Leading Woman in Tech podcast.